the thing about Trump is that what he's really done is make reality itself contestable. And that makes it very hard to fight him. From Schwartz Media, I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. As Donald Trump comes to the end of his first term as US president, it's clear that he's benefited hugely from America's divisions. More than that, he's the perfect expression of them. Today, Don Watson on four years of chaos and what happens next. Don, let's start with what it is that you make of Donald Trump as you look at the final stages of his first term. Well, I think he's a horror. And um, I I guess what I find um, remarkable from the last four years is that 40% of the American public and a surprising number of Australians couldn't see what a horror he was going to be. Don Watson is a speechwriter and author. He wrote about Trump for The Monthly. The mistake is to think that by his crassness and manifest crookedness, you know, he's dropped from the sky. He hasn't. He's, he turned out to be the candidate that American libertarian Republicans like the Koch brothers um, had been looking for for a long while. Don, let's go back a little. I want to choose one moment that, that tells us about the contemporary divisions in American culture. And I was thinking that we could start with Hurricane Katrina. Um, well, Katrina sort of shone a light on the vast discrepancies in wealth and privilege and power in America. Um, it was a kind of great grotesquery. We tried to get down Water Street. We couldn't because of the uh, uh, rising water there. The issue there is the fact that the wind continues to blow in the surge. And the surge comes I went there, I don't know, it was about four or five weeks after the hurricane went through. Maybe it was a little more than that. can't remember. And it's truly extraordinary. Then this morning, the water started to rise. The reports we're getting now, Canal Street, actually we have video of it, Canal Street underwater, uh, Bourbon Street, Bourbon and Canal, that intersection. Not only in the sort of signs of the devastation of this sea surge, which had lifted up casinos, which had been in the water and put them on land and ran fishing boats 400 yards inland and put them on top of post offices and things like this. That was extraordinary enough, but so also was the response. That is to say, the rubbish was still lying there. It was hard to imagine that you know this can-do country couldn't do what was obviously necessary. This is this is hell, and to have this happen in the United States of America, in the state of Louisiana, and to not have immediate immediate response regardless of the laws, is tragic. What happened in New Orleans after Katrina was, was a sort of an example of how flimsy the state was, how flimsy the sort of lineaments of power and effect were. It exposed the great gulf between rich and poor, between black and white and Hispanic. All these things were sort of there for everyone to see. And Katrina was really the beginning of the end for George W. Bush. It's funny how nature has its way of sort of implanting itself on the best designs of human beings. And what did Obama represent in response to this? Well, 
I think it's going to take a while for people to work out, for history to work out just where Obama sits. I think Obama's big mistakes were made in the first 12 months. I think his response to the financial crisis was the wrong one. I think he went the way Wall Street basically wanted him to go when he may well have gone a more radical route and said, my sympathies are with the victims of this and not with the perpetrators. But I think there he lost an historic opportunity to contest the ground with working class America. As a Democrat, it didn't make sense. Not that one expects a lot from the Democratic Party. Obama's failure to really pursue more social policy and to stand up to sort of corporate America left that dispossessed, rust belt, working class, lower middle class cohort of the population to the Tea Party. I went to the first weekend of tea parties and a more kind of decrepit bunch of misfits and ne'er-do-wells and um, grizzlers you've never met in your life. It was quite impossible to imagine that they would, in a very short time, basically take over the Congress. They were sort of proto-fascist organisations in the sense that it was the, the alienated and the dispossessed who felt that they'd been betrayed, that everyone had walked away from them and were happy to attach themselves to anything which made them feel like that they weren't the wretched of the earth. I think that's pretty much as it's described. I mean, they really reduced the American story to a story of white possibility and denial of that possibility. It was a powerful political feeling. And I think that's really quite an important distinction, you know, that it, it's the universe of feeling that uh, politics enters at certain times, and I think that's where it is now, and that's what Trump works on not on reason but on the on the realm of hurt grievance betrayal appalling as he's been it's a kind of trap to think that when he's gone the problem will be over for the united states because the very fact of his existence is proof of the underlying problems and how they can be resolved is pretty hard to see since They've been there really from the beginning. We'll be back in a moment. As a a 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read Post, a free daily newsletter bringing you the top five news stories of the day, summarising each of their key points. Sign up today at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. As a a 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read Post, a free daily newsletter bringing you the top five news stories of the day, summarising each of their key points with links to full articles from a range of sources. Get the news you need to your inbox every weekday morning with Post. Sign up at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. There's a line in your essay for The Monthly, and I'll quote it to you. 
Without myth, great men cannot fulfil their destiny, nor great nations theirs. Can you tell me what that means in the context of Trump's America? Well, I think he really, he, he works on myth, doesn't he? I mean, Americans are inclined to believe in magic, in phenomenal things happening, you know, in miracles, aliens, visitations of one kind, of all these sorts of things, but, you know, the freakish transformative power of capitalism. Trump sort of works in that world. We need somebody that can take the brand of the United States and make it great again. It's not great again. That slogan, that abomination, make America great again, is literally working on myth, but it's also working on a kind of dog-whistle deceit that the America that is alleged to have existed not so long ago where there weren't all these pesky other minorities making their voices heard. Um, Hollywood America, John Wayne's America. We need a leader that can bring back our jobs, can bring back our manufacturing, can bring back our military. It's a mythic realm, a fantasy. And we are going to make our country great again. It's the America when, as imagined, these people basically had the show to themselves. So in the context of that mythic realm, I want to talk more about the divisions that underpin America. Well, where, where do you start? Well, we think of the complexities of the Australian Federation, you know, multiplied by several thousand for the complexities of America. Think of this as a multicultural, ethnically diverse country, multiply by the same number for America. So there are all sorts of divisions. The eastern seaboard versus the Midwest with Appalachia in between. There's the two seaboards, the urban and rural. There's north and south even more dramatically. The unresolved um, racial divide of the Civil War. You have the emancipation of the slaves and within no time at all you have Jim Crow taking over in the American South. You have apartheid, segregation terror, running way into the 50s and 60s. So there's a racial divide that's never been resolved. And a a really powerful adjunct of that, in a way, is the division between Washington and the states. That is, the, the, the attempts by the states to nullify federal law regarding race. The, the sort of voter registration rorts that are now being practised and have been now for the last 15 or 20 years are a continuation of that old divide between federal authority and state authority. And what do these divisions mean in the current moment when neoliberalism has, has convinced Americans of all persuasions that, that profit and self-interest are, are the motives that should define them? Yeah, well, I mean, this is the sort of power of mythification, if you like. When Reagan says it's morning in America, brilliant line, he's really saying you're all now free to think as you like, act as you like, to liberate your energies and your uh, ingenuity and become great American entrepreneurs. And I'm going to get the state out of your lives. I'm going to get taxes out of your lives. I'm going to give you over to what is the real American way, which is largely unrestrained free enterprise. And by the time Clinton gets the job, the idea is so deeply embedded, if you like, in the political commentary, 
that Clinton puts up very little resistance to it. Today we celebrate the mystery of American renewal. This ceremony is held in the depth of winter. But by the words we speak and the faces we show the world, we force the spring. Bush, of course, although he has trouble pronouncing the word, but he's not going on about Iraq, he's going on about entrepreneurialism. The purpose of good policy in Washington should be to unleash the entrepreneurial spirit of the country. Hillary comes up with a health plan which bombs. Right now we are at 90% health insurance coverage. That's the highest we've ever been in our country. Secretary Clinton, so I want us up. to get to 100% but get costs down and keep quality up. The Republicans by then have a strategy of total blanket opposition to anything that comes out of a Democratic mouth. It's only getting worse. In 17, it implodes by itself. Their method of fixing it is to go back and ask Congress for more money, more and more money. And we have right now almost $20 trillion in debt. No one's actually saying, hang on, this isn't what America is like. You know, there has always been this other side about you know, the father knows best communitarian ideal. Um, the solidarities of working class movements, other solidarities across the country, are all in a sense forgotten. It becomes a sort of case of don't mention these things. And do you think that the coronavirus will change at all the power of this belief in the individual and self-interest? It might. I think it's. I think it has created a problem for Trump because it's pretty hard to look at the figures and say he's done well. You know, one hundred twenty-three thousand and counting dead. And I think it's sort of really been hard for him, given his absolutely stupefying narcissism, to sound like he cares much about the dead. When you test, you find something is wrong with people. If we didn't do any testing, we would have very few cases. And when people are having a certain amount of existential angst, he's sounding the usual Trump bugles, like, why don't you go home and ingest some Lysol for your coronavirus? Right, and then I see the disinfectant where it knocks it out in a minute, one minute. And is there a way we can do something like that uh, by injection inside or or almost a cleaning? Because you see it gets on the lungs. I think he's got ground to make up. He's criminally fluffed the whole thing. Um, but also his demeanour has not really been quite what I think the middle rung of American society likes much. The question is whether they're going to buy Joe Biden as an alternative, and that might be a bit of a problem. Mm. So, Don, what does happen next? What happens at the next election? I wish I knew. I'd put money on it. Um, What we do know will happen is that the old divisions will not be readily healed. They've never been healed in the past. That it's particularly exposed and bleeding at the moment. Biden might be a sort of band-aid for a while. And, you know, you should never underestimate the powers of American transformation. But through all its transformations, these divisions have never gone away. Perhaps the greatest danger at the moment is a gathering feeling that it is in decline. There's a feeling that America is is running itself into the ground. And that it's failing. Don, thank you so much for your time today. 
Thanks, Ruby. That was Don Watson on Trump's America. His cover story for the monthly magazine is on sale from today. With award-winning news coverage and reviews, the Saturday paper is essential reading for everybody. For a limited time, subscribe to a year of our quality, independent journalism, and you'll receive the Saturday paper's stainless steel coffee cup, made in collaboration with Fresco, for free. Subscribe from just $2.10 a week. Simply visit thesaturdaypaper.com.au forward slash offer. The Saturday Paper. No hot takes. Also in the news, 90 new cases of coronavirus have been reported in Victoria over the weekend, most of them locally acquired. Victoria is currently conducting a testing blitz, with more than 11,000 people tested across the 10 priority suburbs in Melbourne's north and southeast. The Victorian Premier, Daniel Andrews, yesterday said that no lockdown measures would be imposed in Melbourne's hotspot suburbs until further results of the testing blitz were in. The number of cases of coronavirus worldwide has now passed 9.8 million. I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. See you tomorrow.